This is Faux Real, a podcast where I chat with indie filmmakers about their filmmaking processes, their inspirations, and what their stories mean to them. And I'm your host, Dawn Borchardt. On today's episode, I'll be talking with filmmakers Trevor Frost and Melissa Lesh for their documentary, Wildcat, which premiered at the Telluride Film Festival. I'm Trevor Frost, and I'm the director and producer of Wildcat. My name is Melissa Lesh, director, producer, and editor on Wildcat. And this story takes place in the Peruvian Amazon. It follows two main characters and their journey to rescue and reintroduce an orphan ocelot. Uh, one of them is Harry Turner. He's a young British veteran, came back from Afghanistan, struggling with PTSD and depression. And the other is a young scientist and PhD student who is running a rescue center in the rainforest. So together, they they take on this challenge of reintroducing an ocelot into the wild. And it's really a story, kind of a personal journey of their own healing and coping with some of the things that they've experienced in their lives. I wanted to get started by learning a little bit more about you two, because I'm not super familiar with your filmmaking history. So how did you guys start as co-directors and start as a dynamic duo in that way? And how does that, how do you play off each other? So I, I've been a photographer for most of my professional life and still photographer and, and really actually like eight years ago when Melissa and I first met, well, not when we first met, we met longer than that. But when we first started dating eight years ago, I I was not a huge fan of documentaries. I pretty much only watched it, watched scripted films at that time. And I was under the impression that documentaries were sort of boring and, you know, because many of them, I think for a long time were, and there was sort of a tectonic shift in the documentary filmmaking world really in the last six, you know, 10 to 15 years that I just wasn't necessarily very aware of. There were some documentaries that I watched, you know, that definitely, you know, like I watched, remember watching the cove and being, you know, absolutely blown away that someone made a film like that. And, and so I guess I probably should have paid more attention to the fact that, that people were making films, documentary films in that way. So then Melissa and I started dating and and she slowly was breaking me down and, and, you know, trying to get me to watch more and more documentaries. And I watched, I remember watching searching for sugar man. And, you know, again, I was sort of impressed that someone made a film that was both beautiful and inspiring, but also was, you know, entertaining at the same time. And, and so, yeah, it was very much sort of a, like an accidental serendipitous sort of way for me to come into the filmmaking world prior to making this film. The only thing that, that I had ever done is I worked on a, on a 17 minute film that Melissa and I also collaborated on. And then we had done a sort of a handful of short little films here and there, you know, some of it was branded content type of thing. And some of it was sort of behind the scenes video for National Geographic stories that we were working on, where there was another component to, to the overall story. So yeah, my, my whole, my whole journey to becoming a a documentary filmmaker is very, very whimsical and, and random. Whereas Melissa's is a little more, she, 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 I'll let her speak for herself, but she had a very clear vision. Yeah. I, Trevor and I actually met, kayaking on the James River in in Richmond, Virginia. So that was kind of where our paths started together. We have always both been drawn to nature and we enjoy spending time outside. And that was something that we connected on, you know, quite early on. But my work, you know, I had been kind of teaching myself how to make films for over the last decade. 
I went to school for art. So I was in painting and printmaking in Virginia Commonwealth University in Virginia in Richmond. And in, and in my summers off, I would work for the Fish and Wildlife Service and do, you know, different work on the refuges as a biological technician. So I was constantly kind of being straddled between art and science and trying to figure out a way to bridge that gap, which led me to film. And I, you know, when I picked up my first camera, a T2i, it was exciting to start to be able to tell science and conservation stories with, you know, this, with this really kind of hands-on medium and a medium that I could share, you know, it wasn't limited to these kind of white boxes that we were making paintings in. And so it, it immediately, it felt like the right format for me to be exploring the work that I was really interested in. And that, that set me on a journey of, yeah, figuring out, you know, and, and re- refining my craft in terms of how to shoot and how to edit. You know, I learned how to edit with YouTube videos and, and just by, by making short films. And so when Trevor and I linked up and, you know, figured that there might be a way for us to collaborate, it was already something that I was really interested in and wanted to expand on. And together, you know, we started finding projects and stories that we could collaborate on to really refine the skills that I think we needed when Wildcat landed on our plate. How did you come across this story and meet Samantha and Harry? So as I mentioned, I, you know, I was a still photographer and predominantly before making this film. And I was basically on a reconnaissance mission trying to put together a new story for National Geographic magazine. And I I was looking for anacondas, which are the largest snake on earth. And you know, one of the best places to find them, obviously, is in the Amazon rainforest. And so I was in the in the proven Amazon and I I went down there for 60 days to look for them with a team of local and, and international scientists and explorers, uh, adventurers. And over the course of 60 days, we only found two anacondas at the very, very end of the expedition. Needless to say, it was pretty much a huge failure. And I was spending a lot of time sitting in a hotel trying to figure out what my next you know, step was to hopefully increase our chances of finding one of these snakes. And I was sitting in the hotel lobby one day and Harry Turner, you know, is obviously one of our main characters and covered in tattoos, walked by. He's very striking because of all the tattoos and as he left the, the lobby, a friend of mine leaned over that was sitting next to me and said, did you see that guy with all the tattoos? You know, you'll never believe his story. And he shared with me a little bit about his background and how he arrived in the Amazon. And I was quite intrigued. And then a few days later at that same hotel, I was in, in my room and I had the chance to meet Harry officially and also Samantha. And I and I and they brought with them a, a hard drive and they plugged that hard drive into my computer and started showing me some of the videos that they had filmed together over the last couple of years. And I was immediately, you know, immediately blown away by what they had filmed. I mean, not only the quality of the cinematography, but I think more importantly, when they chose to keep recording and, you know, even in difficult moments, really difficult moments, they kept, they kept the camera rolling. And that's something that you don't see very often. So the combination of just the quality of the, of the video itself and, and when they chose to record really had struck a chord with me. And before I left the Amazon, we had decided to work together to make a short film to basically do some interviews and stitch it together with the footage that they had filmed. And then about a month later, I'm back home in, in Richmond, Virginia, where we both live. And Samantha calls me and says, you know, we, we, we've just rescued an, an ocelot. And at that point, Melissa and I knew that, that we were starting a much you know, larger and longer journey. And that's really, you know, the rest is history, as I say. 
Did this story change a lot? I know that you just said like it did change obviously from a short to a feature when they got the ocelot, but it seems like Harry seems to be forthcoming with the fact that he has PTSD and that's kind of how he landed there. But did the story change as time went on from what you expected with like his mental health issues and things like that and where the story ended up going? Yeah, definitely. You know, when we first started making this film, the kind of idea that we, the driving idea was the healing power of nature. And that was this idea that we were really interested in. We, you know, we knew Harry was very open about his experience in war, going to Afghanistan, coming back with, you know, severe mental illness. And so there was that element of it. And we understood why he first came to the rainforest. So there was always this part of the film that, you know, we wanted, we really wanted to capture the the power of these places and the impact that it had on him and his mental health at the time. You know, he says, he talks about it and says, took him 14 days after arriving in the, in the rainforest to realize that, you know, life was worth living and potential, you know, and that there is beauty in the world and that made him realize just being on the front of the boat and the bats were flying and the power of being in an environment like that was profound for him. And so, you know, we always knew, yeah, at the beginning going into it, that it was going to have the mental health component and that that would be a part of the, at least the backstory and the foundation of the longer narrative. But I think as it happened and as documentaries usually do, you know, they, it evolves and it changes and you learn things along the way. And there's things that happen that you could have never predicted. And one of those things was Samantha and her backstory. So we actually didn't realize any of her kind of, you know, the things that she was carrying with her and her early experiences until about halfway through production. So that was something that was really critical to the film because it created these parallels between their stories and the ways in which we were able to look at trauma and its impact on our lives and how it shapes us and makes us who we are and how it influences the people around us and our loved ones. So that journey, you know, the story kind of continued to complicate itself and and become more and more intertwined. And then, of course, you know, what we ended up experiencing with Harry was not something we anticipated. And, you know, through the making of this film was something we had to figure out how to navigate. Were there things about them or whether it's experiences or the way that they cope with things or just general important traits that they had that really resonated with either of you? Where you were like, oh, I can really relate to this person. And it's not just, you know, making a film for other people to watch, but like I'm really connecting with this story or this person. When I first met both of them in that hotel, I spent more time at that point with Harry. Harry was, you know, Samantha is always has always been more composed and always been more sort of business oriented she's sort of very good at covering all of her bases and making sure that you know she making sure that she's got all of her ducks in a row and she's very organized uh whereas harry is somebody that very much sort of lives on the you know by the seat of his pants i guess you would say and so he was having a much harder time with the idea of turning over the the archive of footage that they had than samantha was and basically he would come over to my room every single day for, you know, three or four days after we met before he actually handed over the hard drive. 
and he would just talk to me for, for sometimes a few hours. And I remember he got quite emotional on, on pretty much every occasion. And uh, he was actually laying in the same bed as me and, and, and crying on several occasions, specifically because it was just a very emotional process and idea that he was going to be turning over this footage and that someone was going to be potentially making a film out of it. And especially because there's, there was already some sensitive material in, in that, you know, in that archive. And I, you know, that certainly struck me right away. It was the fact that he was so vulnerable in front of somebody that he had just met. So, you know, that was something that really struck a chord with me. And then, you know, obviously I could tell that he was quite charismatic and magnetic, you know, everyone sort of was pulled to him. You know, I went out to dinner one night and he showed up randomly and everybody at the table was sort of lit up when they saw him. So he has, you know, he has that personality and, and then at the same time, I was impressed that Samantha was, was like I said, so composed and so articulate and, you know, very much an intellectual, you know, she had this very firm understanding of science and, you know, but it, so it was really interesting to see how different they both were, which I think is one of the reasons why they were able to achieve so much. They really complemented each other. You, you know, you, you always hear the cliche that opposites attract, but in this case, you know, it, it did really work out well for them for a long time. And you know, the other thing that struck me about Samantha, and this was very early on when I met her, was that in, in, in those first few days is that I went for a walk with Samantha. I was leaving the hotel for some reason and Sam was leaving the hotel and I just decided to walk with her for a little bit and talk with her. And that was the first time that I remember seeing how every single stray dog or any sort of animal that was on the street, whether it was a stray dog or stray cat, she had to stop and say hi to it and inevitably feed it. And I remember thinking to myself, huh, you know, I wonder what is behind that, you know, because I'm an animal lover, but I see stray dogs and honestly, some of them are in such bad shape, you know, in, in Peru that, you know, my kind of first reaction would be to just have them put to sleep. It would be better for them. And Sam, you know, is just intent on saying hi to every single dog and petting them and cuddling with them and feeding them and taking care of them. And then immediately sort of raised my antenna. And I was asking, you know, I wonder, wonder where this is coming from. And, and, you know, later we learned, you know, obviously more about her, which Melissa, Melissa can share. Yeah. Melissa, is there things about them or their stories that really resonated with you on a personal level? Yeah. I think from the beginning, it was clear just how much we all gravitated to nature and animals. And, you know, when, when Trevor first met Harry and Samantha in that hotel room, at that point, they'd actually already been approached by a couple different places to to use the material and turn it into something so I think they were speaking with BBC and maybe Nat Geo to do like a short TV episode or something and you know they they talk about it and, and it never felt right for them it didn't feel it was such a personal you know the archive was so personal and the things that they filmed were really sensitive that they they just wanted that deep trust and and shared goal and mission, you know, with the, with anyone that they were going to turn it over to. So I think from the beginning, they saw that in us and they saw the kind of work that we had been doing and our love of the natural world and, and wild animals. And so it was very quickly that we all connected on that level. You know, I remember one of the first days being in, in Peru in the rainforest with Harry and Samantha and Harry's taking us for a walk on down one of the trails and he looks up in the tree and about, I don't know, maybe 40, 45 feet up in the tree. We, we see something, you know, kind of rustling and he grabs onto the, the trunk of the tree and scales this humongous old growth tree with bare feet, 
<laughs> and just his arms and starts climbing the trunk of this tree all the way up to this limb. There's this massive, you know, branch sticking out. And at the end of that, he scales at the, you know, the end of that, that limb and pulls off this huge, it's called a monkey frog, the Philomedusa monkey frog. And it is like the size of your entire head almost. <laughs> and he scales down the tree with this massive monkey frog and shows it to us. And of course, at that time, we I just met him. I wasn't filming. You know, we were just getting to know each other. We were on a walk in the Amazon and it was one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. And I could not believe how quickly and naturally he scaled this tree and then came down with this frog. And he, the fact that he even saw it so high up, you know, it would have been the thing that you would have easily walked past and never, never known. So there was just so many moments like that, that gave you a deep sense of how well they were able to navigate and how much they understood about this environment and how at home they were there. And I, you know, as much as I, I love that, I don't know that I have quite that level. I think I I do feel pretty at home in nature and, you know, sometimes being out in, at nighttime in the rainforest by myself, it was very peaceful. You hear the sounds of the insects, you know, people might say, oh, weren't you really scared? But it's really one of the most calming experiences is being alone in the rainforest at night for me. And so I think we all felt that way. And it was something that we really saw in each other. There was a quote in the film that he said that was, we're wild animals, me and you, we're wild, which I know is like speaking to something that's more than just that surface level, like the story you're saying, but it resonated with me with your story. I loved it. Can you guys talk about your experience shooting or making a film that has such emotional highs and lows and like kind of like how did you keep up with that or like maintain your own stability throughout yeah really high highs really real low lows the, the simple answer to that is that we we didn't do a very good job of maintaining any sort of stability whatsoever I think that there's some, you know, this is somewhat true for everybody that makes documentary films on every single project that are at least the ones that are successful, because, you know, in order to film things that are sensitive, it requires you to, you know, give of yourself. Right. And, and I think one thing that does change, or it's certainly one thing that we've learned is we've, we've become much better now at creating certain boundaries and to make sure that we protect ourselves. So moving into our next film, I feel much better prepared and I think so does Melissa to to handle some of those difficult situations uh, you know I doubt our next film will have some of the really really difficult moments that we had in this film because we're not dealing with you know severe mental health issues like we were in Wildcat but yeah we we threw ourselves in headlong and and it definitely took an impact on us you know big time I mean I I I was there for everything unraveling when his relationship with Samantha unravels. And I was, and that was also the same time when, when things started getting really difficult with Keanu and Melissa was, was not able to come during that time because she had just had brain surgery. So it was just me and Samantha and sometimes just me. And not only were we dealing with, you know, some of Harry's struggles at that point in time, but I was also dealing with Harry and Samantha and their tension. And so I was often caught in the crossfire of the two of them. And, and that, and so it put me in a very 
you know, difficult situation and something that frankly, I'm still recovering from now. Yeah. It's interesting. We talk about, you know, when we're raised as kids or in grade school, you know, there's so many things that we're taught and we have made, you know, you need to take lessons in mathematics and writing and, you know, you need to have all this comprehensive history and, and those kind of more technical lessons, but what's not often taught to us. And I think that we as a society, hopefully will really start thinking about this deeply is like, how do you, you know, cope with grief or, or trauma, or how do you show up for someone that is in a suicidal crisis? You know, there's not a lot of preparation as a society, as, as a friend, as, as a, a, you know, a parent or a child that tells you how to show up for people in those moments. And how do you also process that yourself? And how do you, you know, move through those difficult times? So I think we had no idea, you know, we went in it pretty out of our depth and we did the best we could with the foundation that we had in terms of the love and the the friendship and, you know, really wanting to do what's best for the person that is struggling and also for yourself. And in those moments, you just have to make the call, you know, what is the best thing for me to do right now? And how do I take care of myself? But also how do I show up for this person that is in a really vulnerable state? And it's not always easy. You know, you have to, you have to really navigate it as it comes. And I think we did learn a lot. We learned a lot. And, and I think you see that in the film too. You see this kind of shift happen, particularly, you know, through the eyes of Samantha, when she goes to town and calls a suicide hotline and realizes that this is out of her hands and there is only so much she can do and she needs professional help to really help, you know, to help her navigate it. So we, we learned in the, process kind of with her as that was happening you don't see us on screen but we are very much a part of that same yeah kind of uh, recognition and, and realization that we were we were a part of this conversation as well I feel like as I talk to filmmakers more and more who are making films somewhat similar to yours in various ways that it is more emotionally involved than people realize when they're getting themselves into it. Like you can be telling these incredible stories or these stories that are really important to share with the public. But at the end of the day, you also have to like take care of yourself. And I feel like that's sort of always, almost always put in last when it comes to filmmaking. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the logistics of making this film because it is isolated in the Amazon. And Trevor, and it sounds like you have some experience with your Nat Geo project with the anacondas, but like, how did you go about logistically making this film in the Amazon? Whether that's like, how did you get power? How did you stay like healthy or clean or like how like you have to take care of yourself and also make this film so like how did all that work so we were fortunate in that you know the the entire story really took place on one river and there were sort of two two locations that we would go to over and over and over again and towards the towards i don't know maybe 7 months into production we we switched to predominantly one location Sometimes we would move move back and forth between the two just because Samantha would be moving around as we were following her. We had to go to the other location. So that made it easy in the sense that every single time we went down to the Amazon, we were we were sort of ma- making the same trip, right? So we would fl- fly down to Lima, which is the capital of Peru. And then we would fly another hour over the Andes down into the 
into the Peruvian Amazon and to this town called Puerto Maldonado. And then from there, it was a, about a three hour car ride down a, a logging road. And then it was about a, an hour long boat ride to the, the main site that most of the film was took place. And so once we were there, you know, then it was like about a 15, 10 to 15 minute walk to the, the platform where we all lived. And on this platform, Melissa and I just slept inside of a tent that we had some, some pads on the ground inside, or I think at some point we even actually stuffed the mattress in there. And we, we lived there with Harry and Sam, just like they lived. So we didn't have anything special or different or fancy. And we cooked together with Harry and Sam. We went to bed at the same time. We woke up at the same time. We bathed in a stream. There's a stream that flowed right next to this platform. And we would all, you know, bathe in the stream and you'd just have a little bucket and you'd fill it up with water and dump it on your head. So, you know, it was a, it was very simple and and rustic, but really wonderful because, you know, you would get to detach from society. And I think, you know, the world has become so busy and noisy that get, you know, the opportunity to be in a place like that, even if you're not somebody that considers yourself an outdoors person, I think if you, if you actually took people there that, that weren't outdoors people and you let them spend a few days detaching from society and their phones and their emails and this constant pace that we're, we're kept on, they too would find this incredible, you know, feeling returning to their bodies of sort of like a, a freedom almost that they had never experienced before. And that certainly happened to us every single time we went down there, which is why I want to, you know, it was actually such a joy to, to, to make a film in the rainforest because we were, we were, we had this opportunity to completely remove ourselves from all of the things that tend to stress us out. You know, there was no internet, there was no email. And in terms of power, you know, we would, we, we had little solar panels that, you know, we could put out made by a company called goal zero. And we were able to charge our, our battery sort of battery banks with those to some degree. And they had some solar panels on the roof of the, of the platform that they had built, but not none of them provided enough power for us. So usually the, the best, you know, sort of best plan of action was to bring down a bunch of extra batteries so that you knew that you could at the very least film for most of your trip without charging if you, you know, if, if you didn't have power. So that was, that's sort of, you know, sort of a simple rundown. We would keep all the cameras in, in waterproof cases and, and have silica inside of there to keep them as dry as possible. But logistically, you know, it wasn't as difficult as the shoot, say, where you're moving around a lot. Like if we had been moving around all the time, it would it would have been a much more difficult film to make logistically because then you don't really have a home base. But in this case, we were very fortunate that we had this one platform where we essentially went to. And, you know, it's funny because it's like 60 percent of the film takes place on one platform. And, you, you know, you always question yourself, like, can you make a movie out of this? And then it's really strange to see a movie that's taking place in kind of basically one location. The answer is yes. So you definitely can make a film on one platform because you did a great job. <laughs> it's an excellent film. You know what I did want to say too, like what you're saying with disconnecting really resonated with me because I live in Utah and my absolute favorite thing is to go camping. And like anytime you go in the mountains here, even a little bit, you like immediately lose service. And you're right. It is. There's a freedom to it. Like I cannot reach anyone no matter how much I would want to. <laughs> And I love it. I'm just like, goodbye. I'm out. <laughs> like, peace out, cell phone, world, Instagram, whatever else, emails. And it's, yeah, it's fantastic. And that also, like, must have given you such, like, extra ability to focus on what, like, your film. So you're not, like, distracted by family or friends wanting your attention. Yeah, I think that was actually one of the really critical 
components that helped us make the movie we ultimately made. You know, we give a lot of credit to the rainforest itself for the level of intimacy that we had. And that's it. You know, when you're out in the middle of the jungle and there's no Wi-Fi and you can't check your email and you can't kind of check out, you know, it's so often when you're, let's say, at a family gathering or something or even with friends and everyone's on their phone. And it's like, are you really there together or you just happen to be in the same space? You know, and because there wasn't doors that we could close or we could go to our room or check out and just kind of tune each other out. We were so present and being in nature does that. I think there's an innate just connection there, you know, where you're in this place, you hear the sounds, you're all kind of on the same level because if, you know, if a heartbeat Eagle flies down or, you know, a snake slithers by, you all tune into that and you notice it. Or if it starts raining and it's pouring and you have to grab all your gear and put it inside, like there's just something about being in those natural rhythms of nature that connect you. And really, I think, you know, allowed us to make the film that we made and go as deep with each other as we did. I'll start to wrap up, but we've really talked about the emotional components of this film. But Melissa, I'm also interested if you could talk a little bit about well, both of you, but Melissa, you were talking in the intro about your interest in like conservation and biology. So like what those aspects of the film meant to you and like the projects that they were doing, like, why was that? Or like, how was that important to you? You mean the wildlife reintroduction aspect? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, from the beginning, it was really, really exciting to learn about what they were embarking upon and this journey of wildlife reintroduction, you know, it's a relatively new science and something that the way in which they were hoping to do it and ended up doing it had really never been attempted before. So I think we were, we were really excited by the fact that, you know, we were going to be able to follow this journey of a couple, you know, embarking on this new science and this, and this new process that we could also have the opportunity to document and learn from. So, you know, Samantha's work with Oja Nueva, we really see Wildcat as the kind of origin story of the work, especially the work that they're doing now. It's grown a lot. They learned so much with Keanu. And I think so so many of the things that they learned from it were also mistakes that were made. And how, you know, how did they take that experience and what happened with Khan and then also with Keanu? And we see that in the film learn from it, adapt, and now move forward in a much more kind of effective way to to reintroduce the cat. And I think it's really interesting, you know, because we see around the world as, you know, humanity continues to kind of make its mark on the planet. And as we struggle to restore the balance of nature and humans and our impact on it, I think increasingly we're going to have to look at how do we bring back these ecosystems that are critical to human survival and the survival of the planet and in bringing back, you know, large predators, bringing back megafauna, you know, the science of, of wildlife reintroduction. I think we are just on the cutting edge of really trying to figure out, you know, how do we do this and its importance because ultimately, you know, we need these ecosystems to function and many of them have been destroyed and there will be a point where we will have to rebuild. So for us, I think it was extremely exciting to see this, this new journey and 
of course, the takeaways, you know, now Samantha has really ramped up her operations. The method of reintroduction is also a lot more removed. So you see, you see that personal connection, that really kind of one-on-one mother-child kind of relationship at the beginning of the really of the process when they're really young kittens. You know, they have to bottle feed them. They sometimes their eyes aren't even open. They're really quite young. But then as they grow up, she tries to create that distance and break that bond essentially much earlier on than we see even with Keanu. And their enclosures are also are also much, much bigger. So it allows for prey species to come underneath the enclosure and give the cats more stimulation and more of the experience of kind of hunting and being in the wild before they're fully out there. But it doesn't require then her or another re- rehabilitator to be with that cat all the time walking in the rainforest. It's kind of like Harry did. So yeah, I think it's super exciting. It's a learning process and something that, you know, for us to kind of witness the beginnings of was really pretty remarkable. The last episode I put out was with a filmmaker named Austin Peck, who made a film called Ranger about the first all-female ranger group in Kenya. So I love watching and like seeing these stories about like great strides being made in the conservation sphere. So it was cool to see. I haven't seen that film yet, but I've heard about it and I want to watch it. I think it was at IDFA actually, because we were at IDFA uh, for our international premiere and I okay. saw it there. I saw I it at Mountain Film. So also mm-hmm. in Telluride where your film played, but different festival. <laughs> That's where our last earlier. short film premiered. Mountain oh, cool. film. We love that festival. It's yeah. a great festival. Yeah, I got introduced to you guys through your one of your co-producers, Mariah Wilson, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was used to produce a film festival called the Freeland Film Fest, which was like dedicated to conservation and anti-wildlife trafficking and mm-hmm. anti-human trafficking stories. And we showed Silent Forest and I about Rangers, and I can't remember another film of hers, but she's great. So I'm glad she's to see that amazing. that we're continuing. Mariah. Mariah Wilson, she's our co-producer and one of the first people that we've brought on the project and one of those amazing people that believe in you and believe in the story and are willing to, you know, risk it and put everything that they have into the into the project without any kind of clear, you know, end end goal of compensation or even that it's going to go anywhere. So we are. Yeah, we're super grateful for Mariah. She's she's incredible. That's great. It's good to have people like that. And on the note of going places, your film is going places. So let's wrap up by talking about that. Where can people watch the film and follow along? So the film will be releasing theatrically across the United States on December 21st and theatrically in the UK on December 23rd. And then on December 30th, it'll be on Amazon Prime worldwide. Which is awesome. I don't like take that for granted that these kind of stories get that kind of mass release. It's really kudos to you guys and how you told this story, but it's great to see a conservation story like this getting so much recognition. Like I've been seeing wildcat, wildcat all over the place. So it's really exciting. That is super exciting to hear. Yeah. I think for us, one of the, one of the goals of this film was to reach new audiences. You know, so many conservation stories are being told and they're often reaching the same people. And we all know we live in this little echo chamber. And so, you know, we, we're very aware of what the issues are. And 
you know, films that kind of hit people over the head or continue to preach to the choir, I'd say, you know, aren't necessarily breaking out of that, that bubble. So that was one of our big goals was, you know, how do we make a film that is more universal and it touches on wider themes and we can pull in new audiences, whether that's in the veteran community or, you know, through the mental health angle, let's reach beyond and people that might come in not realizing that, you know, what's happening to the rainforest or these incredible animals, you know, on the other side of the world. If it had been, if the film had been made, you know, Samantha actually said this the other day, she said, we were at a Q&A together in, in Los Angeles. And she said, you know, if, if if we had made the film, you know, Harry and I had made the film, it would have been a very different film. It would have been pretty much all about the reintroduction process. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty positive. That's exactly how it would have turned out. If, if Harry and Samantha had made the film themselves and had filmed themselves and found an editor to put it together, sure. It would have been a fine story, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to reach a lot of people at ultimately, like there's going to be people within the wildlife community and within the conservation community that will certainly watch it, but you're not going to reach any new audiences. But the second that you begin tapping into, like you, you create human entry points, right? Like you have all these people that are going to identify with Samantha and, and her story with her father. And so that how many people out there had a father that was, was abusive or an alcoholic and how many of those people then will, will find a way into this film because of that. And then learn more about the conservation work that they're doing and, and some of the reprieve and solace that, that they're finding through this work. Similarly with Harry, being a veteran, we actually have access to a population of people who, you know, a large population of people, especially in the United States, obviously have a, you know, a large, huge affinity for, for veterans. There's a lot of respect for them, for their service here in the United States. And so we have the ability through a veteran story to capture all their attention right now. And, you know, obviously on not just the environmental front, we can pull them in, but obviously on the mental health front too, because when pe- people generally have this idea that veterans are really tough, right? And they are, obviously they, you know, veterans that serve on the front lines and in, in conflicts around the world, see some pretty awful stuff and go through some pretty traumatic experiences. So they're, they're very tough, but they, it doesn't mean that they are so tough that they don't experience you know, serious issues later on as we're finding out. And so, you know, the, the really exciting thing about, I think both of their, their backstories and the things that they struggle with is it allows people to connect to the other parts of the story through these, these other angles. And that's something that I think Melissa and I are very focused on as, as people who are really engaged with trying to figure out how we can make a difference for, you know, the environment, because we see, you know, we see social issues as incredibly important, but we, kind of have take the opinion that social issues aren't really going to matter if we don't have a planet to live on. And, and so I, you know, it might sound somewhat controversial, but like, you know, none of the social issues matter in comparison to losing environments that are literally the life support structure on earth. So if we destroy all the life support structures on earth, ecosystems, then like, what's the point in doing anything else? And so every, every social issue is an environmental issue, right? they're inherently connected. And yet, if you look at the slates of film festivals, or you look at the slates of distributors that are out there that are, that are buying documentaries, distributing documentaries, or, or just premiering them at their film festivals, there is a dearth of films that are, that have anything to do with the environment. I mean, there's maybe like at Sundance every year, maybe like four or five, right. And all the other documentaries, every single one is a social issue documentary. And that imbalance just, we can't move forward with that kind of imbalance. There needs to be more, films that are 
you know, in the environmental sphere that are reaching, you know, audiences and, 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 you know, the blue chip films like BBC makes, you know, our planet and that kind of thing are obviously critically important. and And I'm not advocating that they go away, but, you know, they, they have one role, right. And we need more films that are, that are a little more direct than those, you know, that are, that are getting out there. So, you know, that's sort of a mission that we're on personally. Well, I'm really excited that this film can reach a wider audience and spark those conversations amongst people that maybe were outside of this bubble that us three are in. Well, thank you guys so much. It was really nice to get to talk to you and thanks for making time for me and all that. And I really appreciate the story that you shared and how vulnerable you've been tonight. So thank you. Thank you so much, Don. It's great to to be here. Both of you. Thanks for sharing it with with your audiences. And uh, yeah, we look forward to sharing it with the world very soon. Wildcat will be out in select theaters starting December 21st, and it will be streaming on Amazon starting December 30th. And a special thank you to Mariah Wilson for making the connection for this podcast episode. The music is Lost and Bound by Talene Kali. The podcast artwork is by Whitney Salgado. And this episode is edited by The Wave Podcasting, which is a really cool all-female podcasting editor group that I found for female podcasters. So I'm super excited to get to work with them. And I'm your host, Dawn Borchardt.